Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our desire at Grace Bible Fellowship is to proclaim the Word of God for the glory of God. At the center of our proclamation is the one who is Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. We base who we are and what we do upon the good news of Jesus. If you would like to know more about this good news or would like to know more about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. That's www.gbfperu.org. I'm glad you've decided to listen to the teaching of the Bible along with us as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. I should invite you to take your copy of the Scriptures this morning and turn to the book of Galatians, chapter 1, verses 6 through 10, is where we will be reading this morning. As we've just begun our study through the book of Galatians, and as we talk about fighting for the gospel, that's what the Galatians were dealing with, having to fight for the gospel. That's why Paul has been writing, because he wants them to fight for the gospel, and he is fighting for the gospel as he writes this message to them, and it's a reminder that we still must fight for it, need to fight for it today. And that we would never give up in that fight. It may be difficult at times. It may be trying at times. It may be fierce at times. But because we treasure the gospel the way that we do, we're willing to fight for it. We're willing to hold fast to it. And I don't think it's a matter of If a fight will come for the gospel, it's just a matter of when that fight will come. Satan would love nothing more than to overthrow the gospel, the message. To try to distract us from it, to try to throw us off from it. But we must be those who hold on to it, know it, cling to it. So would you stand with me out of reverence and respect for God's word as we read Galatians 1 verses 6 through 10 together this morning. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? 
Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. May the grace, peace, and mercy of the Almighty God be granted at all times to us, miserable sinners. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The mood in the camp was restless. And the restlessness began to build. It started out with a whisper, but turned into a low grumbling. The people had been waiting and waiting, and their patience was wearing thin. There, the people of Israel were gathered around the base of Mount Sinai. Their leader, the man who had stood up to Pharaoh... The one who had brought them out of the land of captivity. The one that they looked to had been gone for too long. Too many days. He had delayed. He had gone up on this mountain, but where was he now? What was taking him so long? Where was this Moses and where was his God? They began to say, we cannot see this Moses, we cannot see God. All we've seen is a cloud, a pillar of fire, some darkness, some thunder. But what in the world are we doing here? Why have we come here? How are we going to get out of here? We need something that we can see. We need someone surer than Moses. We need to take matters into our own hands. Here is Moses' brother, his assistant, Aaron. Maybe he can help. Remember Egypt? Remember all their gods? Remember how they could see them? Remember how impressive that they looked? Aaron, you're the priest of this God. We need to be able to see this God. If we could just see him, our lives and our confidence and our faith would be so much stronger. Up, make us gods who will go before us. So Aaron, complicit with the request, instructed the people to bring their gold. He took that gold and fashioned it into the likeness, the image of a golden calf. And when he was done, it says in Exodus 32, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt And so they built an altar, began offering sacrifices, began to worship this idol. And it says then again, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. This scene is one of sin. One of debauchery, one of adultery, where God's people defile themselves with this idol instead of remaining true to their God. And then the scene shifts, doesn't it? We're transported up to the mountain 
Moses just received the two tablets of stone that had been engraved, written with the very finger of God. And the Lord speaks to Moses again and he says this. Go down, for your people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way I commanded them. Here are these people that God had delivered, the people that God had rescued, the people that God had saved. They had just begun their journey to the promised land. It had not been that long, but what did the Lord say? They have turned aside quickly. After all that God had done, after all they had seen of the plagues, after they had seen the Red Sea split in two, after they had seen God's judgment fall upon the Egyptians, after they had seen the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire lead them, after they had seen Mount Sinai tremble and shake as they themselves trembled and shook at the base of the mountain, how much had they seen? How much did they know about the Lord? How much had they experienced His greatness, the mighty wonders that issued from His hand? How much had they known his grace and his mercy and his love yet how quickly they had turned aside astonishing isn't it but we (laughs) we would never do that we would never fall into that same trap We can never spurn God like that. No, my friends, we know ourselves. I know myself. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. We've felt the tug to wander. We've heard the questions in our minds. We've wrestled with the doubt. We've struggled with the uncertainty. We've heard the hiss of Satan saying to us, is Jesus Christ really enough? Isn't there something sure? Isn't there something more that you need? Isn't there something more that you can add? Something that you can assure yourself with so that you can put yourself at ease, make it easier for you? We are those who are prone to wander. And it's because of that that we take this passage of God's word seriously. We don't look down our noses at these foolish Galatians, but we see our need to listen to it, to learn from it, to internalize it so that we are not those who wander This is the occasion, the reason for why Paul had written this letter. The very reason for the urgency and the tone that Paul is writing with. And it's so that the Galatians and so that we are not those who desert the gospel and so desert God. So what must we learn from these verses today? You can follow along in your bulletin if that is helpful. Number one, beware of the danger of turning to a, quote-unquote, different gospel. Beware of the danger of turning to a different gospel. Galatians begins differently than Paul's other letters. It's normal for Paul to give a salutation like he's done in the first five verses of chapter 1, But then it's more customary for Paul to launch into thankfulness to God for the people that he is writing to. 
So it sounds like this. Romans 1.8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because of your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Colossians 1.3. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. Philippians 1.3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Even in the church in Corinth, remember Corinth with all of its problems, with all of its divisions, with all of its sin, with all of its messiness, Paul begins by saying, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. We, however, have a different flavor in Galatians. Perhaps it's because of the urgency of the situation. Paul faces the problem in the Galatian church right from the very beginning. In fact, maybe we could say that there is no thanksgiving because the Galatians had departed from the gospel. How could he give thanks to God for them? And so he starts with his own astonishment. He is shocked. He cannot believe he is having to write this letter to the Galatians. He's writing it for repentance. I don't think he's saying that the Galatians are not saved. I think he's saying the Galatians are saved. But Galatians, you need to repent. You are being tempted. Beware of that temptation. And what you have fallen into, repent of it. And turn back to God. In fact, he says the Galatians are so quickly deserting him who has called them in the grace of Christ. How quickly have they done this? Well, let's just think for a moment. Most likely, there were no churches in this region before 47 AD. Now, when is Paul writing the book of Galatians? He could be writing it 49, 50, early 50s. So in the matter of two, three, maybe four years since their church has been established. And Paul's having to write a letter like this so quickly. And we hear Paul echoing Exodus 32.8 where God accuses those Israelites, remember, of turning quickly from him. Why is Paul wanting to draw our minds back to this event in Old Testament history? He's saying that the Galatians are repeating the error of the wilderness generation. The Israelites departed from God just after being delivered by him, so the Galatians are turning away from God so quickly after they have just been saved by him. Paul puts it in very forceful language. He is accusing them of deserting God. They are turning away from God. This is the idea of they are shifting their allegiance. Deserting God is shifting your allegiance away from God. And what an absolute preposterous situation. Who in their right mind would desert God? Who would act as a traitor against God? And look at all that God has done. This God that you are deserting is the God who called you. This calling is not a mere invitation to salvation. No, it's God offering, it's God giving salvation to them. 
Paul is not saying, I I cannot believe you are deserting God who has offered so great a salvation. Paul is saying, the God who called you, the God who saved you, is the God that you are deserting. This is not the general call of salvation that goes out to all people everywhere to repent and believe in the gospel. This is not the call for people to make a choice. This is the effectual call of God. This is the call that goes out to those sinners and they hear the call and that call so works in their hearts and lives and mind that it changes them, renews them, regenerates them. It's the call whereby God saves sinners. It is the moment of coming to faith that is their calling. By Paul stressing the calling of God, he is stressing God's divine initiative. It is the effectual calling that brings sinners to faith, and it is that calling that enables them to persevere in this faith. It's the same thing that Paul speaks of in Romans 8.30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What does this calling mean for the Galatians? Such an effectual calling. Such a saving means that they are justified before God, that they are righteous in God's eyes. And it's this divine calling, this divine initiative that saved them and that's brought them into the grace of Christ. This is what Paul's saying. You are living in the realm of Christ's Grace. This is a realm that you're living in that you don't deserve. It's a realm that you're living in that you did not earn. How did they get there? How did they enter into such grace? Through the work of Jesus Christ. It wasn't their own effort. It wasn't their own merit. It's not what they had done to get themselves into the grace of Christ. It was freely given to them by God. And they had done absolutely nothing to deserve it. They were called by God accepted by God, saved by God, when they should have been judged, rejected, and condemned by God. And what is the Galatians' response to that salvation that God has worked in their hearts? To desert Him? To leave Him? To forsake Him? To change their allegiance from this great God that brought them into the grace of Christ to go after something else? How could they do such a thing? How could they make such a disastrous move? They could do it because they were turning to a different gospel. But notice, Paul is quick to add, not that there is another one. Paul highlights the absolute exclusivity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is only one gospel. There is only one way to be saved. There are not many messages. There are not many ways to be saved. There are not many ways to God like the world loves to say. The world loves to say that. Even people who pretend to be Christians like to say that. Well, this is the religion that I've decided upon, but, but you need to make up the, your mind on your own. You need to figure it out for yourselves. This isn't just what I believe to be true for myself. There is nothing else to choose. There is no other way. There is no other gospel. And if you do anything to that gospel, you completely reverse it. That's what's happening in Galatia. The gospel was being completely reversed. And such a reversal made it no gospel at all. 
There is no different gospel to turn to because if you change it, if you revise it, if you try to improve it, you take it from being the absolutely best news that one could ever hear. You take it from being the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, and you make it the worst news in the world. You make it become white noise because then it blends into all of the other messages that are in this world. This is what the false teachers who have crept into Galatia have done. They have brought with them trouble. They have not brought peace and security and hope to people's lives. They have only disturbed the people. Their message has become a disruption. The true gospel alone is what brings perfect peace and rest and assurance to people's hearts and minds and lives. But let's just say that sometimes with this different gospel, that it can come with very smooth words. Words that people like to hear. A different gospel will do this. It will feed you spoonful of sugar after spoonful of sugar and it will taste sweet at the beginning. But in the end, you will be troubled in your soul. In the end, you won't find peace. In the end, you won't find security. In the end, you won't find anything of any lasting or meaning or value. Why was this happening? Because these teachers wanted to, they had a desire to distort or pervert the gospel of God. They were not coming singing the crystal clear and beautiful song of the gospel. They came bringing confusion, clouding the people's understanding. And how were they doing it? Simply by thinking that they could add to the gospel. Listen, these false teachers could have said that they believed that Jesus Christ is Lord. These false teachers could have said that they believe Christ died on the cross and rose again from the dead. These false teachers could have said that they believed Jesus to be God. They could have said that they believed in the Trinity. They could have said that they believed in the virgin birth. All of that sounds good, but they also said, if you really want to be saved, you need to be circumcised. One little addition, one little work, one little thing they said the Galatians needed to do in order to be saved by God. One little way they could merit, earn, and so deserve God's favor to be accepted and saved by him. One little improvement in the minds of the false teachers, whereby what? They completely reversed the gospel, and so they completely lost the gospel. How do you know the true gospel? You know the true gospel because the true gospel magnifies the grace of God. There is nothing that you have done to deserve it. There is nothing that you have or can do to earn it. Salvation is the free gift of God, and it is completely accomplished by Christ, depends upon the work of Christ alone. No work that we can do to get it. Nothing that we can do to secure our own salvation 
Are we in danger? Are we in danger of losing the gospel today? Are we in danger of turning to a different gospel? Maybe, maybe we need to get specific to see just how real the danger is. How is the gospel lost? There are some who would say, you are saved through your surrender to Christ plus your right beliefs and right behaviors. This is what one commentator says about these people. This is a fairly typical mistake in evangelical churches. People are challenged to give your life to Jesus and or to ask him into your life. This sounds very biblical, but it can still reject the grace-first principle fairly easily. People think that they are saved by a strong belief and trust in and love for God along with a life committed to Him. Therefore, they feel they must begin by generating a high degree of spiritual sorrow, hunger, and love in order to get Christ's presence. Then they must somehow maintain this as if they are going to stay saved. So functionally, that is in actual reality, a church is teaching the idea that we are saved because of the level of faith. That's the danger. We are not saved by the level of our faith. We're not saved based on the amount of faith that we have. No, it's not the level of faith that we've been able to generate in this life and maintain in this life so that we are always on fire for the Lord. No, it's the object of our faith that saves us. It's not our performance that saves us, even performing good things. It's Christ who saves us through his performance, through his work of the cross. Our performance, our works aren't our Savior. Jesus Christ is our Savior. That is why the gospel says we are saved through faith. Aren't you thankful for that? It's not the level of your faith that saves you. Because some days my faith is weak. Don't lose the gospel, because that is not the gospel. There also might be a danger of losing the gospel in confusion. When people say something like this, Christ has paid the penalty of sin and has perfectly forgiven us, but we nonetheless must go through the penitential experience of suffering and death so as to be fully configured to him in love. What's the problem with this? Is it the finished work of Christ on the cross for our sins, or is it not his finished work? When Christ said, it is finished, did he really mean it? Or did he have his fingers crossed so that if you are not purged or purified Enough through suffering and through death now that there might even be extra suffering even after death that will purify you. What am I saying? Purgatory is not the gospel. Either Jesus paid it all, or you need to add to what he paid. And if you need to add to what he paid, then it's a different gospel, and that's no gospel at all. 
What about one more? The one who says, we are made truly just and not merely imputed to be just. So we are made just, truly just, and not merely imputed to be just or righteous. And they would explain this being made just by saying that it is working with the grace that God gives us that so justifies us. Our right standing before God is the result of our works and God's grace that we are to cooperate with and assent to grace for our salvation. But there's a problem, isn't there? Our justification, our right standing before God, our being declared righteous doesn't come through any of our works. Justification is by grace alone through faith alone. We are imputed Christ's righteousness. That is, Christ's righteousness is credited to our account on account of nothing that we do, on account of nothing that is inside of us. It is credited to us not because of who we are or what we've done, but in spite of who we are and what we've done. Guess what? The Reformation still matters. It still matters because at the heart of the Reformation is the recovery of the gospel because there is only one true gospel. There is no other gospel. There is no other message to turn to. The gospel cannot be added to, improved upon, made acceptable to the hearers. And it comes down to this. The gospel is the unchanging gospel cannot, must not be altered. It's a message from God that is to be revered. And if you revere it, then you cannot move away from it. But we are prone to turn. We are prone to confusion. We are prone to having our hearts troubled, disturbed, and distracted. And here is the crucial, crucial point that we must not miss from these verses. I want to emphasize it because I don't want us to miss it. Paul did not explicitly say that the Galatians had deserted the gospel. They had. They had turned to a different gospel. They had forsaken the true gospel. They were being tempted to do that. But what happens when you turn from or desert the gospel? It wasn't that the Galatians were merely moving away from an idea. It wasn't that they were merely deserting a message. They were not only deserting a particular position. They did not merely jettison a doctrine. Look at what the text says. No, they were in danger of deserting a person. By deserting the gospel, they were deserting God. And those two cannot and must not be separated. It is a traitorous and treasonous act against the infinitely holy God. They spurned the love, devotion, assurance that they had been given to them through so great a salvation that he had called them to. It wasn't just business, it was personal. A personal affront upon God himself because it is God whom we receive through the gospel. The gospel is not there to make us feel better about ourselves. 
The gospel is not there so we feel better about our life. The gospel is not there so we finally get our life in order the way that we want it, the way that it should be. The gospel is there to give us God. Don't desert him by falling for a different gospel, which is no gospel at all. Let us hold fast to and sing out the clear, undistorted, unperverted, unadjusted, glorious gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Number two. Heed the warning against those who preach a false gospel. Heed the warning against those who preach a false gospel. There's a major question you should be asking right now in the middle of this. A very important question. How do we know what is the true gospel? How do we know what is the true gospel? And this is how Paul answers that question. It is the gospel you have received from us. That is, it is the gospel that has been handed down to you, passed down to you through the apostles who were handpicked and selected by Christ. It is his gospel that they have been authorized to preach and teach. It is the gospel that has been passed down through the teachings of the apostles. So, in other words... What is the plumb line for knowing the true gospel? It is God's word. It is the Bible itself. It is the teaching of the apostles that come to us through the Bible. Notice, it isn't the church who determines the message. It's not the church that has authority over the word of God. It's not we who decide, determines what the gospel is. No, rather, it's God's word that determines the message. And it's the church, then, that comes under the authority of God's word and the gospel and is shaped by it, rather than it being us who shapes and forms God's word and so God's gospel. And then Paul gives a sober warning. Notice how he puts himself in the warning, doesn't he? But if we, or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Paul says, we, we the apostles. Paul says, if we come to you, if I come to you and I say that I have changed my mind, that I have a different gospel, don't believe it. Reject it and reject me as one who is accursed by God. Paul also uses a bit of hyperbole to get the message across as well. How about this? How about if an angel comes to you? A mighty, impressive, awesome angel? The kind of angel that when they appear before people in the Bible, those people fall down like they're dead. Imagine, a great, glorious angel comes to you. Who wouldn't believe an angel? Who would dare go against what an angel would say? It's an angel. But if that angel preached a gospel contrary to the one that Paul had already, already had preached to them, you are to reject that angel as one under God's curse. What is Paul's emphasis? It's not the messenger to get hung up on. It's the content of the message. 
It doesn't matter if it's an apostle. It doesn't matter if it's an angel. It doesn't matter if it's someone on television. It doesn't matter if it's someone with a lot of wealth. It doesn't matter if it's someone with a great following. It doesn't matter if it comes from a really good person. It doesn't matter if that person means well. It doesn't matter if that person is the owner of a Fortune 500 company. It doesn't matter if that person is a politician, a college professor, or a pastor. If the content of the gospel is wrong, everything is wrong. And that person is to be accursed under the curse of God. And just in case you happen to think that Paul might have just flown off the handle here a little bit, lost his cool, come on, Paul, are you really accursing people for this? Are you really calling them anathema? Is this really how we are to consider those who would preach a false gospel? Paul repeats what he says in a clear, calculating, and bold firm manner. If anyone, anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you have received, let him be accursed. And it's with this repetition that that word accursed should be left ringing in our ears. This being accursed or anathema is nothing less than the eternal damnation and proclamation upon people's souls. It points to final destruction and condemnation. Listen, those who had been trying to resurrect the law as a way of salvation means that they were standing under the very curse of God. This is no light warning. This is eternally dangerous. How can you join with someone who preaches a false gospel? You can't. There is nothing to navigate. There's nothing to figure out. There is no middle ground. There is no compromise to make. Either everyone must believe the gospel that Paul preached or stand condemned. Does such a warning sound too harsh to our ears? Something that might make us recoil? That Paul is not merely pronouncing as a way to attempt to excommunicate these false preachers from the church, but is stating something about their eternal souls. He's saying, you stand condemned, cursed before God eternally because of what you preached. You are going to hell. Why did Paul repeat and press this warning? This eternal warning of damnation that was upon these false teachers? Because they were tampering with the message of eternal salvation of souls. People's lives, souls, eternal destinies were at stake. The difference between heaven and hell was in the balance. And how awful and morally reprehensible to assure one of salvation that is no salvation and keep them in such a state that they would follow you all the way to hell. Jesus says this to the Pharisees, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Just in case I need to state it explicitly, these false teachers were not believers in Jesus Christ. One more reason why This horrifying warning. In teaching, in teaching that they must add to this gospel, 
that they really needed to follow the law of Moses to be saved, that really they needed to be circumcised, they were nullifying the death of Christ. They were saying that Christ did some things, but Christ didn't do everything. You need something more. It is saying that Jesus ultimately doesn't get you all the way to God. It was saying that Jesus' death was insufficient to completely save you. It was saying that Christ could not remove the curse of God that was upon you finally and fully, that that could come only through keeping the law and being circumcised. This false gospel was not only an attack upon the souls of the Galatians, but it was an attack upon, an affront upon Jesus Christ and the work of redemption he secured through his death on the cross. And we, like Paul, cannot tolerate such a message because it is a message that is completely contradictory to the gospel. And all who preach this false gospel, and frightfully enough, all who follow such a false gospel, stand condemned. But we might be, we might be tempted We might be tempted sometimes to tolerate a false gospel because we want to be accepted. We want to be liked. That's what Paul says next, isn't it? This is our third point. Confess your fear of man and find approval from God in the gospel. Confess your fear of man and find approval from God in the gospel. One of the great burdens that we can put upon ourselves is the approval of man. We want to be accepted by people. We want to be liked. We want people to think well of us, have a high opinion of us, and in our desire for approval and acceptance, we might be willing to compromise some things to maintain a certain image, to keep people thinking what we want them to think about us. And if you know the approval, if you know the pull of wanting the approval of others, you know that that is not a life that's freeing. In fact, that is a monster that needs to be fed over and over and over again. And it doesn't matter what your personality is. Wanting the approval of man can actually paralyze you. Keep you from living. And Paul concludes from his previous two points and says, I'm saying this. I'm preaching this gospel. Because I am not seeking the approval of man, but because he desires God's approval through being a servant of Christ. Paul says that this way of thinking was completely at odds with the way the false teachers and the Galatians were thinking. They were both consumed, whether they recognized it or not, with wanting to find the approval of man, with wanting to be accepted by men. And that means that they had come to compromise the most valuable, the most precious message, and it meant they had compromised the gospel. The way that they were living their life 
was a demonstration that they were fearing man more than they were fearing God. And this is what the Galatians needed to be liberated from. And if we're honest this morning, it's what we need to be liberated from as well. Do you see the fear of man as something that's dangerous to your life? Do you see it as something that brings peril to your life? Is it something that you consider little or is it a big problem? Don't belittle it, my friends. Take it very seriously. Why is the fear of man so dangerous? Because it can prevent people from trusting in Jesus Christ. Listen to what Jesus says in John 12. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. I would contend that this is no small problem. There was a belief, but there was no confession. And so this was not a saving belief. Their love, their affections had not been changed, had not been renewed. They loved the glory that came from man more than the glory that comes from God. Which glory do you love more? How easy it is for us to love the glory of man because we can see it, we can hear it, we can experience it through the actions of others. It feeds our egos, it feeds our pride. And let's not pretend somehow that fearing others is showing love to them. Nothing could be further from the truth. Fearing man is only about loving ourselves. It's because I love myself. That's why I fear other people. This is why Paul says, if I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Did you hear it? These two things are mutually exclusive. You cannot try to please man. You cannot try to find man's approval and man's acceptance and at the same time be a servant of Christ. What do you want What do you want in a preacher of the gospel? Do you want a preacher of the gospel who is seeking the approval of God or seeking the approval of man? Because what does a preacher of the gospel have to do? He has to say things that people don't want and don't like to hear. He has to say things that don't tickle their ears. He has to say things that make them upset and uncomfortable. This is what someone who proclaims the gospel has to come to terms with. This is what Paul had to come to terms with. I Tell people and show people that they are sinners. I tell them that they are unrighteous. I tell them that they are wicked. I tell them that they are objects of wrath. I tell them that they are slaves of the devil and damned and that they are not made righteous by what they do or by circumcision or by any other law, but only by grace and faith in Christ. Therefore, I provoke people's deadly hate. People hate to hear that. But that's what they need to hear 
because then they need the good news of Jesus Christ to flood into their lives that they can be saved by him. Christ came to seek and save the lost. Christ died for sinners, the wicked, the unrighteous, those who are slaves to the devil and those who are damned. Those are who Christ died for. And that's why we need to tell people the truth. That's why we cannot compromise on the gospel. That is why we have to be intolerant. Because there is no other message that saves. We even find hope here in Paul with this little word. You see it in verse 10. This little word, still. If I were still trying to please man. I would not be a servant of Christ. What does this tell us? There was a time in Paul's life and purpose where he wanted to please others, to get glory from others. When Paul was a Pharisee, he went about persecuting the church. When he had excelled above all others, when he was zealous for keeping the law, but he had been changed. He had been transformed. He had been so captivated by the Savior that he became exclusively a servant, a slave to Christ, so that he served no one else. Christ was his master, and he was a willing slave, wanting to live for him, desiring to deny himself, take up his cross, and follow Christ. Why? Why would Paul ever want to be a slave of Christ? Why would anyone ever want to be a slave of Christ? Here's the reason. Because he had found all the approval and acceptance he needed. He didn't need to go to this world. He didn't need to go to any ego feeder to stroke his pride. He didn't need to find acceptance from people in this world. He had found his approval and acceptance from God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it was not approval or acceptance he had to work for. He didn't have to achieve it. It was approval and acceptance that came by God's grace. Approval and acceptance that was his based upon what Christ had done for him, how Jesus had saved him, and how Jesus had made him righteous. Is this the approval and the acceptance that you know? The approval and acceptance that frees you to be a slave of Christ approval and acceptance that frees you to be bold for the gospel, bold to proclaim the gospel, bold because you desire others to know the acceptance that you have found in God. You're not seeking man's approval. You already have everything that you need and you love the glory that comes from God more than any glory that would ever come from man. And that keeps you from deserting the gospel and that keeps you from deserting the glorious God who is over all things. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are prone to wander. We are prone to hear other messages out there in the world and run after them 
Go after them. Pursue them. They sound so good. It sounds like what we want to hear. But Father, let us hold fast to the gospel. The only gospel. The gospel that we so desperately need. Knowing that all of our acceptance, all of our approval, all of our favor has come to us from you through that gospel. And let that free us then to be proclaimers of the gospel. It means sometimes, Lord, that we will have to say things that people will not want to hear. It sometimes mean that we might provoke people's hate against us. But we do it because it's the most loving thing that we can do. Father, if there's someone here today who does not know your approval, does not know your grace, is trying to work for it, is trying to earn it, is trying to do something to get it, is trying to maintain some level of faith that they think will get your favor, I ask, Lord, right now that they would talk to you, ask for forgiveness, and put their faith and trust in the work of Jesus Christ done upon the cross and through the resurrection. That they would find your grace and that they would be welcomed into the realm of grace in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that you would save them. Father, we ask that you would work in our hearts today, even believers. Even as Paul calls for repentance, so so sometimes we need to repent. Let us be crystal clear on the gospel. Let us not move away from it. We pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.